This is a special edition of Minnesota Native News brought to you by Native Voice One. I'm Marie Rock. For over a decade, the prescription painkiller and heroin abuse crisis has had a hold on communities across the U.S. Opioid overdoses tripled between 2000 and 2015. That same year, American Indians in Minnesota were dying from overdoses at a higher rate than in any other state. Well over half of pregnant Native women gave birth to babies dependent on opioids. Many American Indians in Minnesota are wrestling with how to best help people heal from the addiction and the historical trauma at the root of this crisis. Reporter Melissa Townsend explores the unique nature of addiction in Native communities and the response to the current crisis. Hey, Melissa here. I just wanted to say all those stats Marie just read are really important. They're meant to convey that this is a crisis in Minnesota's Indian country. Now, that said, there's often a lot of bad news about Indian country in general, and it can make people feel hopeless and tune out. Well, don't tune out, because in this story, there's a lot of hope. Okay, let's get started. Of course, there was heroin and other opioids in the 1960s and 70s. But back then, most American Indians struggling with addiction drank. And get it off of my shoulders. I don't think there's anybody that's my age that hasn't been left sitting in a car outside a bar somewhere in Minneapolis or up on the res. David Sice is an Ojibwe man from Minneapolis. As a kid, he lived in a housing project on the north side with his parents and his siblings. Well, you know, he mind dad, you know, going out and pile the kids in the car and they go into the bar and get, you know, a bunch of chips and pop and bring it back out and say, we'll be back out in a little while. He says back then there were a bunch of Indian bars in South Minneapolis along this one section of Franklin Avenue. You walk by a car and see a bunch of kids in there. Most people wouldn't think nothing of it. They'd just keep going. You know, it was a different time. Alcohol is still the most common drug of choice among all people, natives included. But opioids, prescription painkillers, heroin, and the like, are getting a lot of attention because their use has risen so dramatically over the past 10 years, and so have deaths from overdoses. And these days, when David thinks about alcohol and drug addiction, he thinks about prescription painkillers and heroin. Personally, I'd say at least 30 people I know are on pain medications because they're in pain constantly. Uh, a lot of them have went through surgeries and prescribed the pain medications. And David's not sure how to help. People need to get off the opioids, but going through withdrawal is so tough. He's worried that if his friends and relatives stop getting the prescription drugs, they'll turn to heroin, OD, and die. That's why nationally, the dominant non-native culture is focused on medically assisted treatment, or MAT. That's where clients are given methadone or suboxone or another opioid. It meets the cravings for the drug, but it's safer than street drugs. Many American Indians are concerned. Because of their unique cultures and history, those struggling with addiction need culturally specific treatment and abstinence from all drugs. Or if you have to have MAT, taper off the drug as soon as possible. We'll explore this point of view over the next hour. But first, let's look at how we got here. Purdue Farm is one of the most profitable uh, companies, and 90% of their revenue is just one drug. It's OxyContin. Dr. Christopher Johnson is an emergency room physician in a suburban Minneapolis hospital. 
and he serves on the Minnesota Medical Association's Opiate Task Force. In the 1990s, a pharmaceutical company called Purdue Pharma set out on an unprecedented marketing campaign to sell their new opioid painkiller called OxyContin. They paid doctors, medical school professors, and other leaders in the medical industry to advocate for OxyContin and to say that it wasn't addictive. They said that opiates were less than 1% addictive. It worked. Oxycontin shot to the top of the list of painkillers prescribed for things like back pain, joint pain. In fact, the campaign increased prescriptions for all opioid painkillers. In the 20 years between 1991 and 2011, prescriptions for opioid painkillers tripled. Now we know that was all wrong. It's bad medicine. It's bad science. In 2007, Purdue Pharma was found guilty in a court of law for their manipulative tactics. They were found culpable for misleading information, for de-emphasizing the risks of addiction, then paying physician advocates very highly to repeat that message. But that did not stop the tide of opioid prescriptions and addiction. The United States is in the midst of the worst drug addiction epidemic in its history. But it's not a crisis of illegal drugs. The CDC also says women are abusing and overdosing on these painkillers at alarming rates. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wants doctors to back off giving the highly addictive drugs to patients with chronic pain. Even as the nation is hit hard by this crisis, it's disproportionately harder in Native communities. Cheryl Whitehawk has been an addictions counselor in Native communities in Minnesota for over 16 years. Addiction is a spirit. And it's a spirit that thrives on chaos and pain and fear. It's had a stranglehold on this community for a long time. And it is using weak and wounded people to attack. Before we go much further, we need to talk. There is this awful stereotype in the world, the drunken Indian. The idea that all American Indians are addicts. Talking about natives and addiction can make it seem like we're reinforcing that racist and hurtful stereotype. So let's get a few things straight. Number one. There's no genetic, like, something about being Native American biologically, no. Dr. Charlie Resnikoff is an addictions doctor at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Opiates doesn't care what your race is. They're basically equally cause addiction in everyone. There is a genetic predisposition to addiction among family members, but not among specific races or cultural groups. That said... If you've had another addiction, like to alcohol or even to tobacco, you're more likely at risk to opioids. And lastly... If you've had a traumatic childhood, a violent childhood, or other mental health issues, you're more vulnerable as well. Many believe this is part of the reason addiction rates are higher in Native communities. Now, many people of all backgrounds have stories of abuse and neglect. These are traumatic events. The clinical acronym is ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. American Indians in the United States are a very diverse bunch, but there is a unique shared history that you might say is full of ACEs. It's commonly called historical trauma. My name is Anthony Stately. Anthony Stately is an expert on historical trauma. I'm Oneida Nojibwe. He lives in Shakopee, Minnesota, with his Dakota partner and their twin sons. The boys are nine years old. Anthony says they do well in school, They go to cultural events, they have long hair, they play hockey and lacrosse. 
He thinks about them as he begins to talk about his own childhood in an Indian boarding school in Chamberlain, South Dakota. So my mother went to boarding school, my mother and father, um, their parents did, my great-grandparents did. So I guess I'm a fourth-generation boarding school survivor. Indian families across North America were forced to send their children to boarding schools. Officially, the boarding school era was between 1860 and the 1920s, but some natives went to boarding school into the 1990s. Anthony spent his first years in Minneapolis. He was six and a half when he was sent away. You know, and some horrible things happened to me in boarding school, like they've happened to lots of different people, you know, many, many tribal communities and tribal individuals. You know, sexual abuse, physical abuse, you know. Um, This memory stands out for me when I was in boarding school. Um, This was when I was older. I was about 10 years old at the time. I decided not to go to church. I was just going to pretend to be sick, and I was going to stay in my dorm and sleep in my bed. Because I didn't show up for church, they made an example out of me the next week. Um, They shaved all my hair off. And they pranced me out in front of everybody in church, down the main aisle. And all of the kids were laughing, you know. And um, and it was pretty clear without saying the words, like, this is what will happen to you if you decide to do what you want to do instead of conforming. Anthony says he was angry and resentful for being sent away to this horrible place. In his teenage years, he became addicted to alcohol and drugs. When I was about 15 or 16 years old, I got into one of the biggest fights I'd ever had with my mother. Now, I had a great respect for my mother, never raised my hand or any of those sort of things. But we were arguing about something, and I got angry. And I yelled at her, and I was crying and a few other things. And I said, I want to know why you sent me to that place. That place was horrible. Do you have any idea what those people did to me? Well, of course I had no way of knowing that she probably did have tremendous knowledge about what they were doing to me. She went to boarding school as well, and she probably experienced many of the same things, right? It's just something we never talked about. As he's talking, he sometimes taps a water bottle cap on the table. And um, she was crying. You know, there was alcohol involved and stuff like that. I think I, I might have been a little intoxicated. I might have even been, been drunk when this was happening. But what she said to me was, I had no choice. She told me the story about how Hennepin County Welfare basically said, like, you know, if you can't take care of your children, we're going to take them away from you. His parents weren't together at the time, and his mom was broke. Essentially, my mom said, I sent you to St. Joe's, you and your older brothers and sisters, because I knew that if I got you taken away from me, that I would never get you back. Anthony says this was a pivotal moment. As soon as I understood, like, all of these things that had been happening to me and all of these things that were happening to my family, I could let go of how angry I was at her. Things began to shift. Of course, it wasn't instantaneous. I didn't, like, you know, get sober the next day. <laughs> But the point being is, is that it's, it's, it created this seed of, of self-awareness where I was starting to understand the larger impact on my family and my community. Now Anthony Stately is 53 years old, and he is Dr. Anthony Stately, a clinical psychologist specializing in multicultural community clinical psychology. He works in tribal communities and lectures around the country about the connection between addiction, genocide, and what it takes for Native communities to heal. Volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes, we call those acts of God, I was right? just thinking that, totally. <laughs> you, know, there isn't a, there isn't a, you know, there isn't a, a people on Earth that don't have some creation story that help us to understand things like the big floods and those kinds of things. What is different about those things from massacres and genocide is that 
historically traumatic events are rooted in processes that are man-made with intent to dehumanize and with intent to harm and with intent to kill. Anthony says there's no clear story about these events. And the pain and loss and trauma is often handed down through generations in the form of addiction and violence and disease. When we have entire families and entire communities who are walking around still sort of like stuck in that place emotionally of mourning and specifically inert in that anger, it makes us ripe for addiction. Because addiction is really about escaping something that makes us uncomfortable. When it comes to the current opioid crisis, Anthony says, American Indians need to be able to grieve and heal from the underlying historical trauma. The movement for culturally specific treatment started in the 1970s and 80s. Elwin Benton was a leader in the movement. He is Ojibwe. He says back in the 70s and 80s, American Indians were not faring well in state hospitals and white facilities. They were very uncomfortable, and most of them did not complete treatment. And back then, they had a therapeutic milieu, which consists of hard confrontation. You know, sit them down in a chair and cuss them out and make them feel lower than whale crap. (laughs) In response, pockets of American Indians across the country were creating culturally specific treatment programs. The idea was that the historical and ongoing oppression of natives in this country called for a specialized kind of addictions treatment. Some medicine people in the Southwest appeared before the uh, American Psychiatric Council and then were able to demonstrate that they had just as much success as psychiatrists who were working with American Indians. So they start using what we call native practitioners. Elwin and others brought this knowledge to northern Minnesota, and in 1977, they built Meshkowsen. They say it was the first native-owned treatment center in the United States. It's here, in the middle of the woods in Sawyer, Minnesota. It's near the Leech Lake and Fond du Lac bands of Ojibwe. The sound of the natural surroundings drift in through the windows. The sweat lodge is in the back, and the powwow grounds are next to the parking lot. It's an inpatient treatment program. Staff here do not believe in medically-assisted treatment for opioid addicts. Here, they believe, addicts need to be abstinent from all drugs and alcohol, and they need to dive deep into their traditional cultural healing practices. Studies prove spirituality, as in an active belief in a higher power, helps achieve sobriety. At Meshkowsen, clients use traditional medicines, sage, sweetgrass, cedar, tobacco. They have healing ceremonies to grieve. They join in circle around the drum to find the heartbeat, to get centered, to build sober relationships with other natives. Maybe the dominant culture would would look at some of the things we're doing and poo-poo it and say, you know, hokey or uh, somebody's crazy or weird. But, um, Cheryl Whitehawk agrees with Meshkowsen's traditional spiritual approach. Again, she is an Ojibwe addictions counselor in Minneapolis. We knew before the European people first came over here that the unseen world was as real as the seen world. We did not have negative feelings about that. We trusted it, 
And it was one of our greatest resources that when you have a dream or a hunch or you see a sign or those kinds of things, that they were real. It was a strength for us. She says American Indians who haven't grown up with tradition still respond to the traditional teachings and ceremonies. It's like there's a cellular memory. When you hear it, you know it for a truth, and it's ringing for you. This is eventually what worked for David Seiss. He was that young boy with pop and chips in the backseat of the car parked in front of the bar on Franklin Avenue. As a kid, it didn't take long for David to do what he saw his parents doing. Adam was about probably eight years old when I had my first drink of alcohol. As a teenager in the 70s, he drank and did speed. He sold drugs, got in a lot of trouble. He also got in a lot of fights. I was proud of who I was being the native. So, okay, you can call me a drunken Indian or whatever, then we're going to see how it feels to get beat. It was one of these fights that actually started David on his path to sobriety. I was right around 20 years old. I went to swing at somebody and went through a light fixture and then light. And so I cut some nerves and everything in my hand, a bunch of stitches. Uh, they weren't sure, you know, if I was going to get used back or not. His sister talked him into going to a ceremony. Which I didn't believe in at the time. Uh, they had everything set up in the house over in St. Paul. The lights were completely turned out. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I talked to a couple of different elders about that, and they said a long time ago they used to have the ceremonies like in daytime, and you could see the spirits coming in. You know, Everybody knew what was going on. There was never any issue. Uh, but from when the Europeans came here, everything had to be kept quiet because they come and take people away and lock them up. In the United States, traditional Native spiritual practices were outlawed until 1978. Some whites called it devil worship. Natives didn't conduct their ceremonies or talk about them in public. You actually rarely hear stories like David's, but there are many out there. All the windows basically had, you know, covers over them, so there's absolutely no light coming in whatsoever. Uh, I sat back in the chair, my head touched the wall, um, and I could see lights coming in from the ceiling. It looked like almost like fireflies. Uh, they were singing some ceremony songs, and people were praying, and... I could see these lights, and I could hear these gourds going around the room. And I kept thinking, how is this guy doing this without stepping on kids? Because there's kids sleeping all over on the floor. That rattling sound of the dried seeds in the gourds, he was trying to track it as it moved around the room. They kept getting louder and louder from behind me, but my head was up against the wall. And then pretty soon my head got pushed away from the wall, and they went up and down my right arm. And then a week later, I got all used to my hand back. David says, that was it. Uh, it was like a light came out for me. I, you know, this is the way I'm going to live my life, the rest of my life. I'm, you know, quit drugs, alcohol, everything. He found a traditional spiritual practitioner that he trusted, and he's been on that road ever since. He credits 34 years of sobriety to his traditional spirituality. But you know what? He says he knows it's not for everyone. He wants people to be free to make their own choices. That goes for medically-assisted treatment, too. If an opioid addict wants to be on methadone or some other drug to be okay, that's okay with him. Cheryl Whitehawk has a different opinion. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. 
Again, Cheryl is Ojibwe, and she's an alcohol and drug counselor in Minneapolis. Where I believe that methadone and suboxone were supposed to assist people in a gradual detoxification from the drug. And then we have to get to those unresolved traumas and reasons that people relapse or switch addiction. Cheryl Whitehawk speaks from experience. Awful things happened to her as a kid. But when she speaks about it, she's candid and calm. I had this experience this one Sunday morning where I was really hungover, and I had been at a party the night before I had been raped, and it was just another horror piled on top of the rest of them. And I was trying to plan the perfect suicide because I could not take it anymore. The horror started for Cheryl when she was just a baby living with her parents and her siblings in Wisconsin. I have generations of people in my family who come from alcoholism and family violence. And that's what I was born into. And the world wasn't the safe place for me as a little girl. Um, There was drinking all around me. There was violence all around me of all kinds. According to the National Violence Against Women survey in 2000, more than half of American Indian women are raped at least once in their lifetime. When Cheryl was 11, she got drunk for the first time. It grabbed me by the throat because it was the first time that the, the depression and the anxiety and the pain and the fear and the terror and the shame and the, all of it, it went away. And at that point... I drank as much as I could, as often as I could, and I never stopped unless something else stopped me. She drank so much that by the time she was 16 years old, the alcohol was destroying her body. And uh, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, and they finally sent me to the male clinic. And that was the first time that the doctor shut the door and looked at me and said, do you drink alcohol? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, you've destroyed your entire digestive system, and you're going to die. You have to stop. It took another year or two until that Sunday morning in front of the church. It was summertime, and the doors were open on the church, and the people inside were singing a song. I'd never felt safe in my life. I'd never felt um, someone watching over me or taking care of me. And they were singing a song. Like it was God talking, saying, I will never forget you, my people. I hold you in the palm of my hand. I will not leave you lonely. And for some reason, I had no relationship with God, spirituality, religion, nothing in my life prior to that. And I stopped in my tracks, and for the first time, I felt God. I felt creator. And then God was talking to me. Um, and saying every single painful thing in your life is getting at you through alcohol. Get it out of your life and you're going to be okay. She says it was like a little light inside of her was lit. Cheryl had no money for any kind of inpatient or outpatient treatment. She was 17 years old, so she went to Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time I walked in, there was a bunch of old white guys in there. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) what am I going to have in common with these guys? I'm... I'm female, I'm young, I'm brown, (laughs) I don't know. But you know what? Somebody told me, you got to give a meeting three tries before you can quit. 
And so I was like, okay, I'll sit down, <laughs> you know. And they were full of wisdom, and they were so kind and gentle to me. There was a couple of crusty, crabby ones that were kind of like, you're too young. But there was a couple of those guys that were really cool. She went cold turkey, stopped drinking. But without the drinking, Cheryl still had a problem. The violence in her childhood had created a cycle. First, something awful and violent would happen. This was the trigger. And then Cheryl would get quiet. Comply, do whatever they say. You're going to get hurt no matter what. But if you fight back, you're going to get hurt worse or maybe you might die. And then she'd drink to go numb. When she got sober, she was still around a lot of violence, still around all the triggers. So something awful and violent would happen and she would stay quiet, but she didn't drink. So she was just left there with all these horrible feelings. Over time, she sought out help from traditional spiritual elders, and she worked with therapists. And then she found this one, I call her the angel lady. She was an experiential and a shame-based therapist. Something totally different. She had me doing these hokey, weird little things. Cheryl says the angel lady told her to buy a doll and find a picture of herself from when she first started being abused and then sew the picture onto the doll. And she said, that's you. That's the little you that never got held and protected and told that everything was going to be okay and all of that stuff. So she said, every day I want you to spend time with her. Tell her that now you're strong and now you're wise and, you know, and you'll take care of us and we'll be safe. And do that for a month and then, co- and then come back and then we're going to talk about it. Well, I felt so dumb doing it at first, but you know what? It was powerful. It was really powerful. Now I can do it without the doll. Now if something triggers me, I immediately have that picture of myself in my mind, and in a, in a spiritual way, I just wrap myself around her, and I tell her all of those things, and, and we're okay. Cheryl has worked for decades through Alcoholics Anonymous, different therapies, and the White Bison Program. That's an indigenous version of the 12 Steps. She says all this work gave her a totally new sense of peace and power in her life. My life is really good now. Yeah. No matter what kind of treatment you end up with, you start in a place like this. I'm at the Indian Health Board in South Minneapolis. I have an appointment with Richard Wright, a drug and alcohol counselor here. He's Ojibwe. Generally, when a person decides to, or is forced by the courts to, seek treatment, they start with a Rule 25. It's a comprehensive report detailing a person's life and drug use history. In Minnesota, it's required for anyone needing public assistance to pay for treatment. The counselor, in this case Richard, uses it to recommend a treatment plan. Sometimes you have to wait as long as two weeks between the time you decide to get treatment and the time you can get an appointment to do this. There just aren't enough counselors to meet demand. Hi, I'm looking for Richard Wright. We have an appointment at four. Okay, it's across the hall and Thanks. Richard Wright's office is cozy. There's soft lighting and carpeted floors. There's a braid of sweetgrass hanging on the wall. 
There are no windows. First thing I would do is introduce myself and say, well, you know what, my name is Richard, and on my reservation, uh, they call me Crow. <laughs> That's my Indian name, I said. And I would ask them if they have an Indian name. And I would ask them, well, what name can I use with you? The Rule 25 report is computerized. The cursor is blinking, waiting for answers. None of these questions are included in the report. Well, what tribe are you? Did you grow up on the reservation? Are you aware of the cultural practices of your tribe? And, and what are some of the ways that you heal? Richard asks the client about herself and what drugs she uses. A lot of them, they're very fearful of this instrument, and, and rightly so. If we take an American Indian woman who's pregnant, everything she tells me is going to lead to the removal of her baby, right? and she knows that, so she's going to try to deceive me as much as she can. right? And you're watching her do that. Right, and I'm watching her do that, and I feel sorry for her. Richard has worked in chemical health with American Indians since 1989. He believes in traditional medicines. This here is the fourth medicine, and this is what we call uh, sweetgrass. Mm-hmm. It's called sweetgrass because you can smell it. It is sweet oh, it smelling. Is. If we light it and we burn it and it spreads in the room, then all of the bad spirits will be asked to leave, yeah. But if I'm treating a person, then I would want to uh, know if they were familiar with this ritual and did they want to use it in their healing. He believes dealing with addiction is one step in a healing process and that healing takes intensive, tailored support. He believes abstinence from drugs and alcohol is the goal. That's what he believes, but his job, when it comes to an opioid addict, is to recommend a treatment plan. What I'm trained to do is to send them to a methadone clinic. He's got some problems with that. You often hear criticisms of methadone clinics and, more broadly, medical-assisted treatment. People say, you're just replacing one drug for another, or it's a free high. They also say it doesn't lead to healing the unresolved trauma that drives the addiction in the first place. It's also putting more drugs on the streets. Addicts can get high off Suboxone and Methadone, so the drugs get diverted and they're sold illegally. In some cases, Methadone has actually become people's first drug of choice. Richard is concerned about all these things, but he's got another beef. For him, given the history that got us to this point, a business that runs off of addicted Indians, that's unsettling. Methadone programs are industry programs. Yeah, it's making a lot of money. Hmm. Some methadone clinics in Minnesota have upwards of 1,000 patients. Intensive residential treatment programs are reimbursed for only 16 patients at a time. Methadone clinics serve more people and thus generate more revenue. Plus, the state reimburses treatment programs on a per-day, per-patient basis. So a methadone patient can be on the drug for the long term, many, many days. A residential treatment program lasts only 30, 60, or 90 days. 
Richard Wright says methadone and suboxone clinics have a financial incentive to keep people on the drugs. So he offers his clients some advice. I say, you don't have to be on this forever. When you get to the methadone clinic, talk to your doctor. Or better yet, he'd like them to go cold turkey. Richard and Cheryl Whitehawk say there's a case to be made for getting off the drugs and getting intensive help. I have a daughter who became addicted to OxyContin after a really terrible car accident. And she had to detox from it, cold turkey. It was excruciating. She said, Mom, that horror of what that felt like to detox is my greatest relapse prevention tool. It's manageable. It's doable. You go through a lot of pain, but in six to seven days, it's gone, right? Cheryl and Richard feel in the long-term, drugs offered in medically-assisted treatment help people numb themselves. To heal, Cheryl says, you need to get off all the drugs, get in touch with your feelings, and set yourself on a whole new path. We're all born for a higher purpose. There's something you're meant to do. Creator has a purpose for you. You, dear listener, now have a pretty good lay of the land, a broad Native perspective on culturally specific addiction and treatment. But the fear of overdose and death in the current opioid crisis is driving many to embrace medically-assisted treatment. I respect and I honor culture and community. I think it's critical. But right now those children are dying in the street, literally in the streets, in the bushes. How will the wisdom gained over generations be used in this current crisis? More on that after the break. You are listening to a special edition of Minnesota Native News, brought to you by Native Voice One. Reporter Melissa Townsend explores what we know about addiction in the Native community and how that wisdom is shaping a response to the current crisis. Addiction to prescription painkillers and heroin is different from addiction to other drugs and alcohol for a few reasons. Number one, a person gets addicted faster and addiction spirals out of control faster. Number two, overdoses are more deadly. And there's one other thing. With many illicit drugs, men use more than women, but not with opioids. Women and men are using them equally, and that includes pregnant women, which means babies are being affected even before they're born. In 2015, over half of American Indian newborn babies in Minnesota were dependent on opioids. Many healthcare experts are saying these babies and their moms have a better chance of survival with medically assisted treatment. This opioid animal is different than anything we've ever dealt with before. That receptor in the brain is demanding the opioid. Recording. Okay. Is it okay if I record? That's fine. Okay. Uh, it's voice only. Voice only. Just don't speak, and we won't even know yeah. you're here. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so we're open from 6 until 1. This is Dr. Charlie Reznikoff. Um, he works at the Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis. He specializes in addictions medicine at its opioid treatment facility. He is non-native. This is the clinic where he works. He's walking me through the routine when a client comes in for her dose of methadone. And they check in, get a number. When their number comes up, they come back. There are 16 methadone and suboxone clinics in Minnesota, and they serve 6,500 clients. There are also 130 doctors with a special license to prescribe Suboxone. Each doctor can see up to 300 patients, and they don't have to be affiliated with a treatment clinic like this one. The state does not collect information on how many patients these doctors actually serve. And then they come back there and they meet with a nurse, and the nurse does a brief evaluation you know, they confirm their identity, et cetera, see how things are going. They dispense a methadone dose. And then some patients have uh, privileges where they can take medicine home with them. So at that point, they'd pick up their medicine to go home with. Dr. Reznikoff's clinic primarily dispenses methadone. But it can be hard to figure out the right dose because it's a powerful drug. Our goal is to get them on a dose that is enough so that they're not using any other opioids, but yet they're still wide awake, going to work, going back to their families, looking for all the world healthy and sober. Dr. Reznikoff says studies show both Suboxone and Methadone are effective in saving lives, reducing incarceration, and reducing infections like Hep C and HIV. Last thing, Dr. Reznikoff says all the studies show that buprenorphine, or Suboxone, and Methadone are safe for long-term use. In fact, when a person tapers off, she puts herself at risk for relapse and overdose. But some people do taper off. That's what Ashley did. Go look out the window, baby. Is that a guy with a Careful, careful, careful. Oh, I'm so This is Ashley and her two-year-old daughter, Maddie. Don't worry, Maddie's okay. They live together in South Minneapolis. Ashley is Ojibwe. Those are not their real names because Ashley asked me not to use those. She had to be in the hospital for two weeks um, because they said that she was showing signs of withdrawal. They had her on a real small dose of morphine. They said that she was doing great. It was just her first couple of days that, you know, she was crying a lot. But I think Ashley's from Minneapolis. She lived here until she was seven. Then her mom died. Her dad wasn't totally in the picture, and her grandma couldn't take care of Ashley and her brother, so she went to live with her aunt in Canada. I was raised traditionally, so, you know, I have a lot of the teachings, and, you know, I know about a lot of their ceremonies. And She got into a relationship with a boy who quickly became abusive. She fled Canada knowing he wasn't allowed into the United States. Back in Minneapolis, she says, she lost connection with her traditional teachings. And eventually, she started taking pills. I was 19 at the time, and I was hanging around with my oldest brother. They was already into the oxys when oxys were really big back then. Oxy is Oxycontin. All I was doing was like Vikes and Perks. Vikes are Vicodin. Perks are Percocet. I wasn't addicted to them. I was just doing them. Just, you know, I just like how it brought me up when I was feeling down. It was around that time she met another young man. I had met um, my daughter's dad. And, um, you have my phone. 
we started off talking and you know just you know kicking it it was supposed to be a one-night stand but it, it just didn't turn into that um ashley ended up getting pregnant right away she didn't know it until she was having a miscarriage so that kind of you know that's when i started with the oxys she got arrested a few times she was in and out of drug court and treatment centers She'd quit pills for a while and then pick them up again. She wasn't really paying attention to birth control or that sort of thing. And then there came a turning point in her life. I got pregnant with my son. I, I carried him until I was like 25 weeks pregnant. Um, I thought I was going to be okay, like, you know, quit cold turkey, because I didn't tell my midwife that, you know, I was using. She asked, and I told her, I was like, oh, no. Ashley's midwife is Amy Langenfeld. She works at the Indian Health Board in Minneapolis. She is non-native. With most drugs, we want you to stop all drugs and alcohol in pregnancy. You know, um, if you read parenting magazines and such, they're going to be telling you not to even eat bologna or cold cuts or soft cheese, right? So the concept of opioids is absolutely opposite of that. Amy says it's the withdrawals that really hurt the baby. So withdrawal is, it cuts the oxygen to the fetus and significantly increases the risks of death and damage to that baby. But at the time, Ashley was too scared to tell Amy about the pills. I thought she was going to call somebody on me. Like, I was just paranoid because I was using, so... And Amy knows this. She's worked with a lot of women in Ashley's shoes. The first thing I do is validate their bravery because they've just come in into a white woman who they don't know and told them something that historically would have gotten their baby taken away. Then I get them connected with a methadone clinic. As a pregnant woman, they go to the front of the line because as many people probably know, there's a long waiting list to get into the methadone clinics. A dose of methadone lasts 27 hours. So as long as you take one dose a day, there are generally no withdrawals. Ashley didn't know any of this. She had already quit the pills and suffered through the withdrawals. She thought she was doing the right thing. I was going in to go see if I was having a boy or a girl. And the day before the appointment, um, I felt my son moving around, but he wasn't moving around as much. As soon as she put the thing on, like you, you couldn't see his heartbeat. He was already gone. They induced labor, and Ashley gave birth to her son the next day. She's not sure if her withdrawals are what ended his life. It's an unanswered question in her mind. I don't know if it was me. I don't know if it was just from natural causes. But um, I, in my head, I'm like, this is a lesson. I didn't know what the lesson was for at the time. Ashley relapsed back into using pills. And then she found out she was pregnant again. So I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was just scared. So I instantly called my midwife, and I told her. I Like, I was crying. I was like, I don't want to lose a baby. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I should just go have an abortion. I don't know what I want to do. Amy's like, okay, well, you know, we can get you in. I was in there the very next day. Um, she knew I was using. Um, and she... Ashley sort of stops talking here. She looks like she's a thousand miles away. I ask her what she's thinking about. Just my son... Um, like trying to put piece everything together. I, like when I say I try to take the good from the bad, the creator wouldn't just put him in my life, you know, just to put him in my life, you know. 
He came in my life as uh, a learning experience, and he wasn't a mistake. He was nothing that, you know, I, I don't know. He helped me become a better parent and a better mother for my daughter. Midwife Amy Langenfeld works with the Hennepin County Medical Center Obstetrics Department, the county's addiction clinic, and another county service called Project Child. In the five years between 2010 and 2015, the collaboration worked with nearly 70 opioid-addicted expectant moms, like Ashley. All but two of them went home with their babies. When moms use illicit street drugs, the baby is taken by child protection immediately. The collaborative is not culturally specific, and they highly encourage that the women they work with stay on methadone. When Ashley was first pregnant with her daughter, Amy Lingenfeld helped her and her boyfriend both get on methadone. Ashley says from the beginning she was fixed on tapering off after the baby came. And she did. Now she takes care of her energetic and totally adorable two-year-old and her six-year-old niece, who I didn't meet but who is also probably totally adorable. Ashley rents a house, she has a full-time job, a car, and she's planning on going to school soon. No, over here. Come look at the window so we can look at the people. You see the people? Yeah. What? I spoke with another mom with a similar experience, except she's decided to stay on methadone. Because you have to take it, um, you have to take it a lockbox with it. They won't give it to you unless you have a lockbox. So then this is. Nicole keeps her methadone in a plastic bag in this lockbox on the top shelf of her closet out of reach of her children. She is Ojibwe. She doesn't want to use her last name. She's been on methadone for nearly three years. I don't tell a lot of people, you know, because I don't, you know, I don't like the, well, you're not really sober, which, yes, I am really sober. You know, I mean, I've got my children back. I'm living a good life, you know, because it's a way of thinking. I'm not out there involved with people that are drug dealers and you know, users. I'm not, you know, I changed my whole life. Yes, I am, you know. Nicole's addiction started in 2009 with Oxycontin. She started swallowing the pills, then snorting them, then shooting them. When the Oxycontin pill changed to a gel cap, you couldn't crush them anymore, so she moved to heroin. The way I feel when I think about it, I just feel sad. It was just dark and sad and, um, like, I can't even listen to songs from that time, you know, because it reminds you of times where me dope sick or me feeling hopeless, you know. She was in and out of treatment for years until finally she had had enough. I was just like, you know what, I'm just done. I'm so sick of living like this. I'm going to get in the treatment and do what I got to do, you know. And she did it. She got on methadone and successfully finished an intensive outpatient treatment program. She doesn't practice traditional teachings, but she says her belief in God and her church is really a great support. She rents a spacious house on the north side of Minneapolis with her boyfriend, who is also in recovery. And she has regained custody of her children, so she's busy taking care of them. I just show them love. You know, I didn't get a lot of love when I was younger, you know, so I try to, you know, make them feel good about themselves. And, you know, I think I would have turned out a lot better if I would have got these things. You know what I mean? Up to this point, Ashley and Nicole's experiences on methadone are pretty similar. Both have kicked the illicit drug use and regained a relatively stable life. But sobriety, however you define it, is a lifelong process. And methadone is one step. 
midwife Amy Langenfeld, is a huge advocate for methadone and Suboxone during pregnancy. But even she says... Once their baby's born, they're just themselves again. If women don't get to adequately heal from that addiction, it's very easy for them to regress back to the emotional pain management of the illicit drugs. There's very, very few programs that support postpartum women. Ashley recently broke up with her boyfriend, Maddie's dad. So she's on her own. You know, I was I was let down by my mom to me in my eyes because, you know, this woman was supposed to raise me and be here for me, but yet, you know, I know it's not her fault for... It, I think it is kind of her fault for passing away. I know it's kind of harsh to say that, but in my eyes, you know, if you know that you had kidney failure and you're not supposed to drink, why do you keep drinking? So, I mean, I don't know if anybody else has felt that before about a loved one or anybody. She's still off the pills, but she's drinking. That's my me time to be able to go out and just, you know, have some drinks, get drunk, and then go back to work. Nicole is still on methadone. She has her children, a stable income, a solid home. But just like Ashley, some old wounds still need to heal. It's hard for me to trust sometimes, you know. I mean, I I feel I can't trust anybody still. And it's so embedded in you because you grew up like that from not trusting the cops. You know, don't trust the white people. And then with alcoholic or drug addict parents, I was on my own at 13 years old. Like, literally, on my own. You know, so around people that you have to always watch, you wonder if they're telling you the truth, or with your um, head over your shoulder because you don't know what they're going to do. You know, you grew up in that environment. You grew up not trusting, you know. Nicole is working with a group of Native women in Minneapolis to build a supportive housing complex for women who have struggled with opioid addiction. It would focus on healing with traditional Native teachings and different therapy options. Nicole says she thinks it might be a place where she could find some people she could trust. When somebody lived the life I lived, I feel like a connection to them, you know. You know, oh, she gets me. The group is looking for funding, but on the federal level and here in Minnesota, money earmarked for opioid addiction treatment is generally headed in a different direction, toward medically assisted treatment. Hi, everybody. I've got a special guest with me this week. In May 2016, the White House produced a video featuring President Obama and the musician Macklemore, who has struggled with his own opioid addiction. I know recovery isn't easy or quick, but along with the 12-step program, treatment has saved my life. There is widespread recognition that there needs to be more public funding for deeper treatment to address the pain that drives addiction. In Minnesota, people are waiting as long as a month between their Rule 25 initial assessment and a spot in a residential comprehensive treatment program. It's a problem. In his video, President Obama lists some actions his administration has taken to help people get treatment. And under Obamacare, health plans in the marketplace have to include coverage for treatment. But problems remain. Obamacare does call for coverage of addictions treatment, but so far it favors medically assisted treatment. Last July, the Obama administration increased the number of people who could receive Suboxone from a licensed doctor. And specific insurance directives in the Minnesota Insurance Exchange favor medically assisted treatment over comprehensive and culturally specific care. 
It's even affecting what tribes can offer their citizens. Rick Colson runs the Tegui Recovery Center. It's a long-term abstinence-based program for Natives run by Natives on the Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewas Reservation in northern Minnesota. The program is funded by tribal, state, and federal dollars. Early on, we figured out how to do treatment with opiate addicts, really focusing on case management services so that things outside of treatment start to stabilize and that we can um, start working with that client um, internally much faster. When a person comes to Tegui saying they want treatment, Colson staff first helps them get into a 30, 60, or 90-day inpatient treatment program. Colson calls it a detox period. Once they finish, clients can spend up to 18 months here at Tegui. There's lots of research out there that says the longer that you keep a client engaged in, in treatment activities, the more successful they are. Colson does not want to start a medically-assisted treatment program with Suboxone or Methadone, but he thinks he might have to. With the uh, Affordable Care Act and more individuals being on state-funded insurance companies, we have to first get prior authorization to place them in inpatient treatment. We don't always get that. When they do get insurance companies' authorization for treatment, sometimes the patient isn't allowed to finish out the program. They're getting um, diverted, I guess, for lack of a better word, into uh, Suboxone or Methadone programs, and they're being discharged within 10 days. That is, they get sent home early from treatment with a prescription to a maintenance drug, and they don't come back to Tegui for counseling and case management. Rick says he loses them. It's unclear how often this is happening, but Rick and others are concerned. Fond du Lac, the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe, and others are working with the state of Minnesota to change the rules for insurance companies on the state's exchange. The White Earth Nation, an Ojibwe tribe here in Minnesota, has embraced medically-assisted treatment. They've started their own Suboxone program as part of a comprehensive, culturally-specific treatment program for tribal members. Adam Fairbanks is the program's director. Our objective is to try and deal with the mental health issues, deal with chemical dependency, help people you know, find their um, cultural identity, do ceremony, um, help people heal. The tribe has a short waiting list for the Suboxone program. But Adam reluctantly admits they have a long waiting list for the culturally specific, comprehensive part of the treatment. So some people are you know, trying to get in and are on MAT right now, but haven't gotten to the level of care that they need to yet because of the capacity issues that we face. They need more money and more staff. Our last story is from a tribe that runs the oldest tribal MAT program in the state. The Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe has been running its Suboxone program since 2009. The number of clients hovers around 90. Like most other MAT programs, It is controversial. Becky White is the program's director. She is Ojibwe. A lot of the community members say that we are just giving out a pill to take care of the pills that they were already taking, and that's not true. Um, The program does not sell itself as culturally specific, and it doesn't gear people towards tapering off the drug. That's an individual's decision. But Becky says clients have to see a counselor or a case manager weekly. They have to attend two group meetings a month, and they have to produce a clean urine screening. No illicit drug use. There's one other common criticism of the program. You guessed it, the business side. 
Many are unsettled that their own tribe is making money off tribal members who are struggling with addiction. I don't have the financials for the program, but Becky White says it's doing very well financially. Here's how she explains it. It, it is going well. Um, but, yeah, I don't know if I want to say anything more about... I can tell you how, how we're helping in the community. Um, she says money from the Sabox Home Program has helped rehab a nearby homeless shelter, build a new tribal justice center, and an assisted living facility for elderly people. So, yes, we, we are bringing in revenue, and that revenue is helping our community. Leroy Staples Fairbanks is on the Leech Lake Tribal Council, and he used to work at the opioid program. It, it could become perception that people become dollar signs at that point. You know, it's it, it's definitely not an economic development venture for us that we think that we're going to make money off of people and it's going to save us. He says the financial success of the program allows the tribe to explore opening their own inpatient facility and to shift focus to prevention. With the amount of drug use, everything is kind of so disconnected that we need to get the community element back together of, of, of people helping one another again, like real long-term stuff. Leroy and I are talking in his office. He's behind his desk, and at this moment, he reaches towards his computer monitor and peels off a blue Post-it note. Written in pencil in all caps, it says, Healing Ceremony. He says he's been thinking for a while that the tribe needs to turn its focus to healing as a community. Like Anthony and Cheryl... Ashley and Nicole, tribal communities may be able to find a way to turn this opioid addiction crisis into an opening for deep healing, to come out stronger than they were before. For this special edition of Minnesota Native News, I'm Melissa Townsend. Special thanks to Aaron Warhol, Diane Richard, Marie Rock, all of the people who talked to me for this story, and Lars Sella and Miami Nangstead. Minnesota Native News is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota. This has been a special edition of Minnesota Native News, brought to you by Native Voice One. Native Voice One, the Native American radio network.